He doesn't pull any punches, does he? He speaks very clearly about his role as the judge, uh, that he judges the world, uh, but that he also comes in loving, disciplining judgment to his own people. Uh, Judgment begins with the household of God. We're up to uh, this letter to the Church of Sardis, the fifth uh, letter in these seven letters to the churches. And as we have been, we'll look at the portrait of Jesus at the beginning, the promise at the end, and see uh, what they mean for uh, the church that Jesus is speaking to and to us as well. So the portrait that Jesus gives to himself, uh, of himself to the church in Sardis, is uh, that of the one who is Lord of the church, who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, the seven spirits of God, they weren't part of the actual vision that John had of the Son of Man in chapter 1, but we did hear uh, that phrase in this Trinitarian greeting uh, at the start of the letter in verses 4 to 5, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, the Father, from the seven spirits who were before his throne, the Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. Seven is symbolically used to convey divine perfection. Since the Holy Spirit is uh, who we call the third person of the Trinity, he, not, not it, but he is fully God, equal in the divine nature, equal to the Father and the Son, a distinct person within the three persons of the one true God. So there aren't literally seven Holy Spirits. Seven conveys this fullness and perfection. Not, not a numerical amount. Now notice also where the Spirit is positioned in this greeting. He's before the throne of the Father, which, as we'll see in a few weeks, is a throne that the Father also freely shares with his Son when he gives him authority over all things. So the Spirit is before the throne and it's a place of commissioning, of sending The Spirit is there because he is sent by the Father and the Son into the world. Again, we'll see a bit later, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes. Here the seven eyes represent the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Remember how in creation... We were told in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. The next thing that happens, right at the very start of creation being shaped and formed into order and fullness and something that was very good is the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit was sent right at the very start to bring completion and fullness of the command of the Father in unison with the Son. This completing, perfecting 
work of the Spirit is characteristic of what he does all through history and we see it in the way that he's at work today. Think of how the Spirit is at work in us and among us today. In the Gospel, the Gospel is the Father's plan in which he sent the Son who did the work of salvation in the cross. Now he sends the Spirit And the Spirit does the work in us to enable us to hear the Gospel and to respond. The Father's goal in salvation is that we might be adopted as sons and daughters. And it's the Spirit who enables us to know that adoption and for us to cry out, Abba, Father. And as sons of God, we're transformed to become more and more like Jesus And that's the work that the Spirit does within us, taking from what is of Jesus and making it known to us, leading us into all truth. And we see the Spirit working in the church through the giving of gifts to members. Why? With the goal of bringing the church to maturity, fullness, completion in Christ. So it's fitting then that the Spirit is described as the seven spirits because he brings the divine perfection and fullness of God to bear on us. Jesus has the seven spirits because it was the risen Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father who poured out the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, the Spirit that was coming and giving life. So see how Jesus first received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit and then poured him out on us. This is an action of the Son out of the command and the authority that he's received from the Father. So the Spirit's work in us, in the church, is always in unison with the Father and the Son. That's the key test of whether something can be attributed to the work of the Holy Spirit or not. Whether it's personal experiences or things claim to be revivals or whatever takes place in the church, if it doesn't point us to the crucified and risen Jesus sent by the Father as revealed in the Scriptures, then we shouldn't claim it to be a work of the Spirit, no matter how positive or nice it might feel or appear to be. So Jesus holds the Spirit in one hand and the seven stars in the other. Remember what the stars represent? We're told they are the angels of the seven churches. I said in our second sermon in this series, we can't, I don't think we can be dogmatic about whether angels here are spiritual beings that we normally think of when we hear the word angel coming directly to us from the presence of God, always communicating the word of God and displaying his glory, or whether they're human messengers 
specifically the, the leaders, the elders uh, of the local churches who were responsible for preaching and teaching and discipling and would have probably been the people who would have actually read this letter to the church. But I did say that I, I personally lean towards the human messenger interpretation. But regardless of who the angels literally were, they're the angels of the churches. So Jesus holding the seven stars in his hand means he holds the churches in his hand. He gives to the church the authority that he has, as we saw last week. And he holds the church secure. Remember what Jesus said? He said, I'm the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus caring for his church. And see how the spirit and the church are, so to speak, perfectly matched. Seven spirits, seven angels of seven churches. Not only does he hold us safe and secure in his right hand, but he gives us the full measure of his spirit, the exact, the right amount. No church misses out on the spirit. No church has more or less of the spirit than others. The Christians at Sardis in their struggles, didn't need to go over to Smyrna to visit the church there because there were no problems in the church of Smyrna and catch the fire and bring it back to Sardis. That's treating the spirit like a substance or even a virus, not a person. If we have the spirit working among us, we have all of him. And while he might work in different ways at different times, we need to be assured that he is among us in his fullness. The Bible speaks of quenching the spirit. It doesn't mean that we have more or less of him, but that we resist and we rebel against his work of speaking to the church so that his presence among us becomes an experience of judgment, not of blessing. When churches fight and split and fall apart, it's not so much that the Spirit has left, He's very much present, actively handing us over to our sinfulness and its consequences. Someone once asked me, is your church Spirit-filled? And I knew what that person meant. Did we practice the gifts described in 1 Corinthians 12? Or do we have a certain style of worship? I can't remember what I replied, it was a while ago, but really a spirit-filled church is actually a tautology. A church, so-called, that doesn't have the spirit isn't a church. A church, by definition, belongs to Christ and it is spirit-filled. So Jesus' work in his church through the Spirit is what's in view when we come to the promise at the end to the one who conquers. As I said, it's the Spirit who brings and applies to us all that Jesus accomplished 
through his death. Have a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. There's the word of judgment from Christ who is the judge. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The Spirit washes, sanctifies, justifies us so that the filthy rags of our own righteousness are stripped away and replaced with clean white garments, representing the perfect righteousness of Jesus that's given to us. Hold on to that picture of people dressed in white because it will come up several times through the book of Revelation and when it does, it's a portrayal of the justified, sanctified saints who, whenever we see them, whenever you see people dressed in white, they'll always be with the Lamb who has justified them and sanctified them. It tells us of the promise that we have as the bride of Christ. We will be presented to him pure and spotless. So it's a picture of security. Dressed in white. As is the next part of this promise. I will never blot out his name from the book of life. Now, again, keep that image in your mind. We're building up a catalogue of images to keep in our minds uh, as we go through this book. It'll come up several times, the Lamb's Book of Life. And we'll be told that these names have been written in this book before the foundation of the world. If your name's in the book, it's not there because you wrote it, but because he wrote it even before you existed. It's there not because of what you have done, because you weren't there to do anything. It's not because he looked down the passage of time and discovered that you would choose to believe or to follow him. No, you, you chose to believe ultimately because your name was written in the book of life by him and he was faithful to his decree to make sure that you heard the gospel and were drawn by the Spirit to believe and come to him. Because we had no part in getting our name into the book, it was all of grace. The Father chose us in Christ. He predestined us for adoption as sons. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified, Romans 8 we can have an absolute security because Jesus is the only one qualified to put our name in the book. He's also the only one qualified to remove our name from the book but what does he say? He never will. Someone once said, well, if Jesus says, I'll never blot your name out of the book of life, doesn't that imply there's a possibility that he could? And my answer to that is, why would we take such a word of assurance from Jesus and turn it around to be a reason for doubting or fearfulness. 
Does Jesus keep his word? Believe his word? Now, if these two images of our security in salvation aren't enough, he gives us a third because he wants to impress on our hearts the rock-solid assurance we have in him. And this one is an astounding one. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. We normally talk about confessing Jesus' name, don't we? The word confess, as we saw, if you remember our series earlier, is the word homologia, which means to speak the same words. And it's our confession of Jesus Christ as Lord that unites us together as the church. And we express that sometimes when we speak the words of the Apostles or the Nicene Creed whenever we assemble. And it's the responsibility of the human angels of the church to faithfully bring the testimony of Jesus to the church to ensure that the church continues to confess Jesus as Lord. But here, it's a different assembly. It's the assembly of the Father and the Son and all of the angelic hosts of heaven. And it's in this assembly that Jesus confesses your name. He declares that you are with him and he is with you. He stands there on your behalf as high priest and advocate, the guarantee that your name will always be remembered by the Father, the assurance that the way into the holy place is always open for you. To use an illustration that Jesus sometimes used, the kingdom of God is like a great banquet to which only those who are invited may enter. Jesus is the one standing at the door with the guest list in his hand to ensure that you're allowed in because your name is in his book. When Jesus used that illustration of the banquet, he was concerned with two issues. Firstly, there were those who presumed to be allowed in on the basis of their own works and they were to understand that they should be refused entry if that was their plea, their good works. But he was also concerned about those who were fearful, who were doubting, who needed to be reassured that his grace alone is sufficient to guarantee entry when their only plea is not their works but the blood of Jesus. So it's a strong word of assurance given both to the church as a whole and to each individual person. And it's what's needed by the Christians in Sardis because of their spiritual state and because of what Jesus says to them would be absolutely devastating if they didn't know that they were surrounded on both sides of this these words of lordship and care for his people. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. What a thing to hear from the mouth of Jesus. When everyone thinks we're alive, 
we're actually dead. The word translated reputation here is actually the word name. It's the same that's used when Jesus says, I'll confess your name before my father. The church here was more concerned with their reputation in the world of having their name confessed and accepted amongst people. More concerned with that than with their reputation, their name before the Father. It's a bit of an odd thing, isn't it? A bit of a modern phenomenon that we give our churches names. It it can be helpful because it helps identify which body of believers someone is uh, involved in. But it can also be a clever marketing exercise to try and give ourselves a reputation amongst people. Come up with the best, clever sounding name you can and maybe people will say, I'll go to that church because it sounds cool, sounds good, sounds biblical. From time to time I receive a message or an email or a phone call or even an occasional visit on Sunday morning from someone who assumes, based on the name of our church, Bethel Christian Church, that we're part of the big Bethel Church in Reading, California. And um, mostly they're disappointed when they turn up and find that we're not what they're expecting. But the Bethel brand is known across the world, mainly through their worship business. And I call it a business uh, because it is a business. They have a, an annual turnover of around $11 million a year through the sale of their music. Many people assume that because Bethel in California has a worldwide reputation that what they produce must be good and life-giving based purely on the fact that they're famous and their songs are sung everywhere. Well, Jesus tells us that a reputation is no indication of spiritual life. Church may have lots of works, may have lots of events, lots of programs, but that's not proof that they're alive. Here's some other devastating words that Jesus said in Matthew 7. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me you workers of lawlessness. These people appeal to their works. Let us into the banquet. Look at the works we've done. And the works in and of themselves aren't bad. In fact, they're works that Jesus and his apostles did. And they're done in your name even. But Jesus says, I know your works and they're actually works of lawlessness. So too with Sardis then. Notice that Jesus doesn't tell them to stop doing works. Rather, he says that your works are not complete in the sight of my God. So what does it mean to call works incomplete or lawless? And what are complete works? Well, Ephesians 2, 8 to 11 can help us with this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, 
so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Incomplete works are works which begin with us. We initiate them. We determine what they are, how we do them and even what we think they're going to accomplish. We might look around us to see what the needs are or even do a survey to find out what the church members or the local community wants us to do. We may have the sincere motivation of wanting to build the church and to reach out and so we might say kind of in almost a token kind of way we're we're doing these things in Jesus' name. Maybe thinking that attaching his name to our works will get him to use them or that if people know that we're doing these good things because we're Christians, they'll somehow know what the gospel's all about or at least ask a question about our faith. But in the end, these kinds of works that start with us will always be on a horizontal level because they begin with us and they will also end with us because in the end we're doing them for our own benefit, whether it's to grow the church numerically, grow our influence, grow our budget, grow our reputation so that the world likes us and doesn't persecute us. Ultimately, they'll be works for which we will claim the glory. Complete works are different. They don't begin with us, but with God. What comes first is God's workmanship. He takes the initiative in salvation. So it's all by grace and not our own works that save us. And this grace then continues through everything, such that even the good works that we do are works that he's prepared beforehand. When we do our own works, we describe them like those people did before Jesus as mighty, worthy of recognition and respect from people. But these works that come from God are simply described as good works, acceptable and pleasing to God. Why? Because ultimately they're his works. We're called simply to walk in them because we've been created for them in Christ Jesus. It's all of God doing this. Now Jesus doesn't tell the church in Sardis what these works are to be precisely but that's not a problem because he's already told us in his word. As a church we know what our work should be because there are things that the church has been commanded to do. Things like gather regularly, devote ourselves to reading, hearing and studying his word, breaking bread in the Lord's Supper, praying for and with one another, loving one another as he has loved us, hold firmly to and hold out the word of the gospel and the list could go on. If we focus on the commands that Jesus has given us in the pages of the New Testament, we won't have time to come up with all of our own harebrained, ambitious, worldly strategies and activities we'll simply be doing the things that God has given us to do and the result will be that he 
not us, gets the glory. So this is a shocking and confronting word from Jesus. We can fill up our time with all kinds of works. We can have a reputation of being a living church, but if they're not complete, then Jesus pronounces them as dead. Pronounces us as dead. So we need to be constantly examining what we're doing, asking ourselves, is this a work of obedience to the command of Christ and for his glory or is it just about us? And in your newsletter, there's that little slip that might look like, oh, here's a whole lot of things for us to do, a whole lot of works. We have to always be uh, guided by the Spirit as we seek to do these various things of reaching out to the community and be asking that question, are we just doing this as works that's come from us because we want to build ourselves up or benefit us or is it truly something that Christ has given us to do for his glory? So what is a church to do when they realise that while they thought they were alive, they're actually dead? What does Jesus say? Wake up. What an odd thing to say to someone who's dead. A dead person can't hear. dead person has no power or capacity to bring themselves back to life. It's just as odd as Jesus standing at the tomb of his friend Lazarus and calling out, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus had been dead for four days and was already decomposing. How could he hear, let alone respond to Jesus? And that's the point. Jesus' command here to wake up shows again how it must be all of God's work. It's his command, it's his word that actually brings the dead back to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. The running joke with the story of Lazarus is that it's a good thing that Jesus specifically addressed Lazarus when he said, come out, otherwise every grave in the world would have broken open and every dead person would have come to life. Such is the power of his life-giving word. It's the same word that brought creation into being. And so, not only can Jesus speak to a person or a church that is dead and say, wake up, but when he does, it will happen. Not by our own power, not by our own might, but by the power of the Spirit. His command not only tells us what should happen, but when directed to us, it actually makes it happen. You may have seen some of the buzz on the internet the last couple of weeks over what's been happening recently at Asbury University in Kentucky. Some are declaring it to be the great end times revival. Others are discounting it as pure emotionalism. Uh, Asbury is known for its history of revivals. Uh, They list eight of them on their website. They haven't yet updated it to have include this one, the ninth one. In fact, one of them they describe as a planned revival because the movement they came out of sees revival as something 
that we can plan and kind of make happen by putting all the right things in place. Now, whether Asbury is true revival or not, we will know by its fruit. But regardless of whether it's genuine or not, it's at least it's got a lot of people thinking and asking, what actually is true revival? Is it even a biblical thing? And how can we know if God is bringing it? Well, I think our passage this morning tells us Revival is when Jesus brings dead people and dead churches back to life by the power of his word. True true revival begins when Jesus unmasks the sham of our self-initiated spirituality, of our mighty works and shows us that all that we think is living, all of our strategies and methods and all of our frantic activities is actually dead and deadly. And then he speaks, wake up, and the impossible happens. The dead hear the voice of the Son of God and his word gives life and we're restored to a holy fear of the one who judges and purifies and redeems his church. We see Jesus not as our friend or our role model, but as the gracious, all-powerful Lord who has the authority to erase our name from the book of life, but because of his great love and mercy, he ensures that it's in there. The one who has the right to say, Depart from me, I never knew you, but in grace he confesses our name before the Father and his angels. He's the one who instead of looking at the filthy rags of our own dead works, instead clothes us in the pure white garments of his own righteousness. So are we prepared to have Jesus confront us in this way? to have Jesus tell us the truth about our works and to hear, if necessary, that our works are dead and incomplete in the sight of God. But even more importantly, are we prepared to hear his word that gives life, that says, wake up, strengthen what what is remaining? Are we prepared to hear his sure word of promise Uh, that he is with us and among us and holding us secure in his hand and that his spirit uh, lives in us and is working among us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we hear your strong word this morning and we come before you in repentance, acknowledging both as individuals and as a church Uh, the times that we have uh, set off doing our mighty works, thinking that uh, we're doing your will, but really we've just been serving ourselves. We repent before you and ask for your grace and mercy and forgiveness and we know that you promised that to us. We ask that uh, anything that is dead might be cut off from the vine and that the new life of the new branches might be grafted back in, that we might be a people and a church that does your works 
in obedience to you and brings glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen.